Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do they don't come back, Mother? What's the secret? Back along the old track by Sam Hicks. It's funny, but I can't remember how the game ended, or if it ended at all. But I do remember that I had just set my last but one domino on the old wooden counter, and that Tom Ranscombe was chuckling softly as he looked at the piece he held shielded in his hand. I don't remember if he was amused by victory or defeat, because then someone said, There they all go. And in such comically doom-laden tones that I turned from our game to see what was meant. Outside the deep bay windows of the old King's Inn, a hearse was rolling past. It was moving at little above walking pace, slow enough to accommodate the black-clad mourners following on foot. A dense tumble of greenery, mainly ivy, I think, was heaped over the coffin, piled so high that a great deal had spilled into the cavity around, snaking up the windows as if it were growing still. Ten people followed the car, amongst them two small children, heads bowed and hands clasped tightly, prayer-like in front. There was a stir of interest in the public bar, and some whispered comments that I couldn't quite catch. Whose funeral? I asked Tom. That'll be old John Sleater's. He leaned on the counter with his arms straight and the fingers of his big hands spread, watching the procession with narrowed eyes. About time too, some would say. Tom was the landlord of the pub of the holiday cottage I was renting, and a man whose words you listened to. He was intelligent, well-read, and possessed an air of calm sagacity, born, I like to think, of a lifetime study of the human dramas played out in his domain. So, although I was surprised to hear him make such an unkind comment, I was prepared to believe it wasn't lightly said. He continued, They'll be in here later for the wake in the back room. Sleeters have always held their wakes at the old king's. How long's always? I asked. This pub's been here since 1453, and so have the Sleater family, though they were here even before then. That's how long always is, young man. Now, do you need another drink, because I'd better get those sandwiches laid out. Best pack the dominoes away. Don't want them catching us engaged in madcap frolic. I ordered another beer. I had been meaning to leave after our game, but now I wanted to stay and take a look at the Sleaters. After ten minutes or so, Tom reappeared and said to me, Now, when they come in, make sure you don't catch any of their eyes. Right. Are they really that bad? Not always, but I'd advise caution where sleeters are concerned, just in case. Everyone in here knows about them, but you, being a visitor, don't. One of the old men playing cards at a corner table and clearly not hard of hearing spoke up. You'll do well to listen to Tom, young'un. I still got some lively scars from the day I looked at a sleeter wrong. Here, you know you can see their farm across the field at the back of your cottage. That place? That's theirs? Oh, yes, Tom said. Lucky for you, there's a field in between. You're out of harm's way, don't worry. Is it their field? Oh, yes, but you've seen it. They don't pay it much mind. Mainly, they raise goats and brew cider from their orchard. We sell it here, the cider. People come from miles around to drink Sleater special. Knock your socks off that, Will, said a grizzled man sitting on his own near the door. And you know all about that, Arthur, said Tom. The public bar of the old King's Inn was small, making a private conversation difficult when, as on that day, so few people were there. I wanted to question Tom further about this notorious family, but was held back by the thought of being overheard. Had it been the weekend, which was when I'd first arrived, it would have been a different matter. Then the pub would be packed with people from surrounding towns, come to enjoy its unchanging rustic charms. The low-beamed ceilings, the thick cave-like walls open stone fireplaces and the barrels of beer stacked up behind the bar. Then, even the back room would be lively with shouts and laughter, and the sleeters and their funeral gloom would be far from anyone's mind. As Tom said, I was a visitor. Yet even an outsider could sense the tension growing in the room. No one left, and little was said. Tom took to wiping things down behind the counter, and quite unnecessarily, I suspected, to counting the takings in the till, filling small bags with coppers and silvers and replacing them in the drawer with an impatient sigh. Then a blast of March air put an end to the vigil as the door swung open so abruptly 
that had bounced off the frame with a splintering crack. Tom winced. Everything's ready, he said. Just go through. I didn't turn my head after the warning I'd received, but I watched the party as they trooped past the end of the counter, through the low door and into the crooked passage that led to the back room. There was no missing the family resemblance in the three generations, although it was split between two types. The three younger men, one of the older men and a woman I placed in her late sixties, represented one branch of the clan. They had heavy, prominent simian jaws which didn't quite fit with the high, narrow foreheads and small, sunken eyes above. The older man and the two younger women had flat, mask-like faces with squashed noses and thick-lidded, watery eyes. The children, perhaps aged five or six, had these same liquid eyes and already a marked thickening around their chins. An unpleasant thought occurred to me, and when they were all safely out of hearing, I said to Tom in an undertone, Close-knit lot, are they? Tom raised an eyebrow and leaned across the counter. So you noticed that, eh? Sleeters marry Birchards, and Birchards marry Sleeters. And if your cousin is your third or your second, or your first or even your half-sister, well, who's counting? The little ones haven't become one or the other yet, but they always do. They don't combine, you see. One side always gets the upper hand and then the face comes out. The Sleeters have that Cro-Magnon look, and the Birchards look like fish. Oh yes, you'll see it all out here. And you thought all the excitement was to be had in the city. For all Tom's counsel a few minutes later, I did just the thing he had warned me not to. Before leaving, I needed to pay a visit to the gents, which was situated perilously close to the back room, just off the connecting passageway. When I emerged from that tomb-like chamber, I simply couldn't resist a glance through the open door. Emotions were clearly running high. One of the older men, he with the sleeter looks, had pulled one of the younger male sleeters towards him by the lapels of his funeral jacket and was shouting in his befuddled face, You should know what to do by now, you mangy idiot. You're less use than a turd. I'll have to take care of myself then, won't I? The rest of the party looked on, not shocked by the man's behaviour, but rather approving of it, it seemed to me. The senior sleeter tossed the younger one aside, sending him crashing into the table where Tom had set up plates of sandwiches and bottles of cider and beer. Then, swearing loudly, he pushed his way out of the room, only to meet the eye of the puny stranger cowering just beyond the threshold. If it weren't for his obvious distraction, I'm certain he would have punched me in the face there and then, but as it was, he shoved past me, uttering something like a growl. I was shaking when I returned to the bar. You just met Jacob Sleater, didn't you? said Tom when he saw me. Cheer up, you're still alive. I took the scenic route back to the cottage over a field and through Lark Woods, the box of dry food that Tom had given me for Sanderson rattling in my bag as I went. Sanderson was a big bruiser of a ginger cat who lived in the woodshed behind the house. Tom Ranscombe fed and cared for Sanderson, a stray, but had utterly failed to persuade him to move into his flat on the first floor of the old King's Inn. Sanderson preferred his independence and his bed in an orange crate full of rags and wadding to life as a bachelor's companion. Tom said he hoped Sanderson might change his mind when he got to be an elderly cat, that he might see the wisdom of pooling resources, but that for now he was resistant to logic. As soon as I was back I filled Sanderson's enamel bowl with the food and called for him, but then I spotted him over near the dustbin by the kitchen door. He was hunkered down, patting lazily at some small creature in the grass so completely possessed by that feline mix of playfulness and cruelty that he was oblivious to my presence. I shouted at him and advanced, hoping to rescue the bird or mouse from a slow death by torture. Sanderson looked up, amazed to see me there, and scooted away through the hedge into what I now knew to be the sleeter's field. I squatted down to assess the condition of his prey, then leapt straight back up with a yelp, Armed with a stout twig, I approached again. It wasn't easy to say what it was. It was as white as squid, with the same slimy gloss, but as thick and muscular as a steak. The shape I can only compare to a hugely magnified wheatberry, pointed at the ends and fatter in the centre, slightly convex at its widest point. It lay, oozing a thin grey liquid that shimmered as it leaked into the grass. Perhaps Sanderson had got his claws on the afterbirth of some farm animal, I thought. I prodded it with the twig, then lifted it toward the dustbin. 
As I dropped it, it twitched. Retching a bit, I banged down the lid and wiped my hands on my trousers, even though I had not actually touched the thing. I had by then cancelled my plans to drive into the nearest town for dinner that night. It struck me as far too much effort, and I was instead looking forward to a cosy night basking in the warmth of the cast-iron wood burner, some soup and bread, maybe a glass or two of wine and bed before ten. That, after all, was the idea of staying here. I'd intended walks on the high wheeled, early nights, wholesome food, peace and quiet. I could just as easily have had a couple of weeks in Italy or Greece or France instead of the safe option of rural Kent. But I felt tired, just thinking about airports and taxis and museum crowds and hire cars and other languages and trudging along endless, dusty, incomprehensible streets. I needed, at that particular time, familiarity, smugness, ease. I'd been working too hard for too long, and after one incident too many of losing my temper with someone I shouldn't have, I finally took my head of department's advice to have some time away. A friend of mine recommended the cottage in the hamlet of Mardham. She'd stayed there one Christmas. It was bliss, she said. One pub, one church, one shop, houses that really looked like gingerbread, and everyone was so nice. As dusk fell, it started to rain. I hoped Sanderson had recovered from the shock I'd given him and returned to the shelter of his little nest in the shed. I looked out the kitchen window as I stirred the soup on the hob, checking for signs of him. At the end of the strip of lawn, the high blackthorn hedge, still winter bare, for it had been a cold, late spring, revealed scraps of the field beyond. Where the ground rose in the distance, I could see the ramshackle metal barn, randomly patched with bits of wood. Behind it was the buckled roof of the house, a narrow ribbon of smoke rising from one of its four chimneys. Tom Ranscombe was right about the field. The sleeters didn't appear to pay it much mind. Earlier in the week I'd balanced on an upturned bucket to look over the hedge, curious to see if a crop was growing there, but was left none the wiser. Nothing there but a collection of diseased grey seed heads rising from collapsed rosettes of leaves, patches of thistle and rough weed, claggy earth and stones. The fading light and the rain lent a greyness to everything that evening, a dreary, sodden aspect that made me glad to be indoors. The radio burbled from the mantelpiece, and the simmering soup bought from a city deli smelt good. Then I saw something walking past the hedge in the sleetest field. The parts that were visible through the twisted thorn darkened, then lightened, then darkened again. I was sure it was a person. The person had to be a sleeter. With the unruffled movements of someone unaware they're being watched, I carried the soup pan to the table and then returned to the window, pulling the chintz curtains shut in a casual, everyday way. If they couldn't see me, I couldn't see them. But I couldn't let it go. For the rest of the evening, I was as jittery as a rabbit who knows a fox has caught its scent. I forensically analysed any unexpected sound, turned the radio down at every creak and crack of old timber and brick, and checked that the doors were locked again and again, in case I'd been mistaken the last time. I pictured the sleeter lurking outside, waiting for me to emerge so he could inflict lively scars upon me, as had happened to the man in the pub. I had, after all, caught Jacob Sleeter's eye. Perhaps he would come for revenge and I could only guess at what he might think suitable. In the end, the wine and the warmth of the sitting-room stupefied me sufficiently for sleep, and I tottered up the narrow stairs to the bedroom I had made my own. I went to draw the curtains and paused when I noticed that the rain had stopped and a perfect full moon was shining, dazzling, over the sleeter's field. And there, at the brow of the hill, I saw a hunched figure with a coil of thick rope slung around his upper body, labouring, head down, towards the barn. He passed into the shadow of some trees and was gone. I rose late the next morning and had a proper fried breakfast washed down with several cups of strong coffee and seeing as it was a cheerful blue-skyed day set off for a walk along the river and past the old mill ponds that were dotted around the outskirts of the village I checked the sheds before I left, but there was no sign of Sanderson and his food looked untouched. But I was pretty sure that there was no cause for alarm with a cat like that. 
I laughed at the state I'd got myself into the night before. For God's sake, I told myself, you live in a city where you take your life in your hands every time you walk home at night. And here, you get jumpy at a shadow behind a hedge. It was, after all, only extraordinary circumstances that had led me to know of the Sleater's existence, and, in all likelihood, I wouldn't see them again before I went home. It was possible, I'd been told, to walk in a circle from my cottage, through meadows and small orchards and scraps of copse, whilst never leaving the banks of some watercourse or another. The area had once been home to several water mills and a leather-dyeing industry, remembered in names like Tanner's Lane and Mill Road, and the first stream I was to follow, the Mill Leet. I found this stretch of water, sheeny, leaf-clogged, barely moving at the edge of a meadow that was halfway turned to liquid mud. A comparatively dry footbridge at the far corner took me over a white, swirling weir, and then I was on the bank of the little river Chase, whose maundering, sedimented course I followed for the next mile or so. The path then cut away from the bank through sharp hawthorn thickets, past scatterings of leafless apple trees, and on to skirt round pastures, whispering with the bubbling, licking sounds of watery earth. I passed a series of ponds covered in floating islands of broken reeds, a collapsed and abandoned tractor-trailer, a pile of man-sized concrete pipes, moss-grown and forgotten in the field, and then... I was again by the river, crossing a rusty metal bridge back in the direction of the village. My hope had been that a walk would lift my spirits, but in fact it seemed to have left me feeling a bit demoralised, perhaps due to the effects of the sludge underfoot and the sluggish, despondent look of the landscape in those few square miles. Even the willow branches overhanging the river held snags of decaying vegetation, circling in the breeze like corpses of tattered birds. Knowing that the final section of any walk always seems the longest, I increased my pace, which wasn't easy with boots plastered with wads of grass and mud. Then I came to a sudden stop. A deep masculine shout rang out, as clear as a cannon, from somewhere back the way I came. But it was more of a bellow than a shout, aggressive, full of guttural threat, the kind deployed to scare a savage animal away. Nightmare images of violent pursuit sprang panting into my mind, bloody wounds and matted fur, yellowed teeth bared in gruesome, slavering mouths. I pictured the crazed dread of the animal as it tore through the spiked thickets, headlong, dangerous like the man giving chase, prey and predator, deadly to anything which crossed their paths. Having turned myself light-headed with fear, I broke into something near a jog, and didn't dare slow for the last half-mile, not until the path turned back to the lane where my cottage was. My breath was still ragged when I walked into the back garden and saw, framed in the open door of the shed, the goblin form of a sleeter child. I recognised it as a larger of the two I had seen in the old King's Inn. My guess was that it was a boy from the cut of the stiff hair, but the features of the child were ambiguous to say the least. He gazed at me listlessly and stretched out a stubby arm, I was looking, he said. For a moment I was at total loss. What did you do in situations like that? Is your daddy here, I ventured, or or mummy, someone? I went to the back door and found it locked as I had left it. The child began to sniffle. I was looking, he whimpered. Well, that's all right, I said. Looking's all right. Now, how did you get here? Do mummy and daddy know you're here? He shook his head and poured his cheeks with his shrimpy fingers. What the hell was I meant to do? Of all the kids that could end up in my woodshed, why this one? One thing I was sure of was that I was not going to be the one to return it to the Sleater farm. Then I thought of Tom. I only had to get the child to Tom. He'd know what to do. Now, I bet your mummy and daddy are looking for you. We'll go and see Tom at the Old King's, you know, where you were yesterday, and then he'll get your mummy. How about that? The child nodded, staring at me with a sort of awe. I suppose he was trying to work out what I was, Sleater or Birchard, or something entirely wonderful and new. I got him to follow me to my car, strapped him into the front seat feeling exactly like an abductor, and drove the half-mile to the pub. There was only one punter in the public bar, much to my relief, an ancient, flat-capped fellow lingering over the dregs of his beer. Tom Ranscombe was behind the counter drying a glass, holding it up to the light for smears, humming a merry tune to himself. When he saw me, he put the glass down with care. Well now, what's all this? he said. 
I went up to the bar and slid onto one of the high stools. Tom, I've just found a sleeted child in my woodshed. He's outside in my car. I don't know what to do. Tom scratched his head and blew through his teeth. Now, let's see. Take him back? I know, I know, but what with them being a bit hostile? You wondered if I might do it instead. Well, I thought it might be better, but you could phone them, couldn't you? They could come and get him. Hmm, thing is, they don't have a phone. Barely got electricity. And the thing is, they'll know you found him soon enough and they'll wonder why you didn't take him back yourself. And we don't want sleeters set all a wonder. So, what I suggest is to come with you and then we'll return the errant child together. How about that? Just give me a minute to lock up. I'd rather hope not to involve myself at all, but I deferred to Tom's judgment. I wasn't in the least surprised that there was a handmade keep out sign at the start of the pothole drive that led to the sleeter place. The drive branched off a narrow lane that ran past the tiny medieval church and graveyard. I'd already walked the lane and discovered that soon after the church, it became unsurfaced track through apple orchards, narrowing to a dirt path that led up Mardham Hill. The child sat quietly in the back seat as I drove, sniffing every now and then. I thought he was probably enjoying his little adventure. You better wait here, Tom said when we pulled up in the yard in the front of the house. I'll see if anyone's about. I nodded assent as I looked at the smashed windows on the ground floor of the dirt-coloured buildings, the door swinging on one hinge, the bits of clothing and pots and pans and glass strewn around the muddy concrete yard. Christ, I said, what the hell's been going on here? Sleet has been going on here, Tom replied. I watched him go up to the house and call out. When no answer came, he walked round the side, probably to check the barn. I didn't like him being out of sight. What if they turned up now, with me and their child in the back of the car? The yard was situated behind the miserable field that backed onto my cottage and through a gap in the trees, stricken, wind-cheered things. I could see the upper floor and the humped clay tiles of the roof. I sat forward in my seat. Through the gaps of the hedge I could see something white, moving slowly, in a way that even from there was suggestive of a living thing. A big hand thumped onto my near-side window and the door behind me clicked. It was Tom. Across the yard... Hovering at the side of the barn was the sleeter matriarch. Her arms crossed over her old khaki sweater, her face set in an inexplicable expression of defiance. Come on, little un, Tom said, helping the child from the back seat. Grandma's waiting for you. The boy hopped out and scampered over to the woman who made no move to hug him or even ruffle his hair. Instead, she kept her eyes on Tom and me as I started the engine and reversed the car out of the yard. Well? I asked him as we jolted back up the track. Why was the house all smashed up? And had they even noticed the kid was gone? Tom shook his head wearily. What can I tell you? I asked if there'd been any trouble and do you know what she says? Ha! She tells me a goat got out the top field and went a bit mad. That's where the rest of them are, she says, putting the mad goat back in the field. Little Adam must have wandered off in all the fuss, she says. A goat? A goat that rips doors off and needs a whole gang of sleeters to restrain it. He looked at me and sighed. What can I say? I'd like to say it'd be nice for them to do something normal for a change, but I suppose the shock would kill me if they did. Now, how about a whiskey in the pub before you head back? On the house. I said I would pass on the offer, but agreed to go to the old King's Inn that evening. Tom promised me free beer to make up for all this fuss. Back at the cottage, I inspected the garden for evidence of an animal having been there, particularly a white one, but there was nothing I could see, not even Sanderson. I reminded myself to let Tom know that the cat had made himself scarce. Perhaps someone in the village had seen him. Perhaps he'd moved in somewhere else. But maybe he was sick. Perhaps that stuff he'd got hold of didn't agree with him. I cautiously lifted the dustbin lid to have another look at it, but... Either it had sunk down to the rest of the rubbish, or it had dried up into the shriveled black curl of stuff that lay on top of yesterday's papers. I ended up passing a pleasant evening in the Old Kings. I got roped into game after game of euchre, which luckily I'd played a few times before, with three of the old boys, and what with a generous supply of beer from Tom, the gruff, sarcastic banter, and the soothing crackle of the log fire, I wandered back to the cottage with the satisfied feeling of a few hours well spent. There had been, however, one moment of awkwardness, 
although I swept it aside at the time. When I returned from the bar after a pause in play, my three companions cut short a hushed conversation. The last few words sounded like, One more day, but I wouldn't have dreamed of asking what they meant. I went up to bed relaxed and content, and fell asleep straight away, only to come awake some hours later, horribly, coldly certain that someone was in the house. I lay rigid, listening to a sound which may have been just outside my bedroom door, a prolonged, yawning creak like a slice of floorboard being prized from the frame above. As if sensing I was now fully conscious, the noise stopped. I clenched the blanket, staring into the dark until my awareness of every sound, and then of the mournful, hollow circling of the wind outside, reached such an endurable pitch that I leapt from the bed, smacking the light switch on and slamming the bedroom door to and fro with a cry of, I can hear you! I can hear you! Silence answered me, but I detected a change, a lifting of pressure, a new texture, as if what had been there had now gone. I turned the light back off and went to the window, opening the curtains a crack. Out there, in the almost phosphorescent light of the moon, I saw two figures crossing Sleater's field, and one of them, I'm sure, turned briefly, as if he knew I were there. As I made a late breakfast the next morning, I started to toy with the idea of cutting my holiday short, but then I became annoyed with myself for letting my over-anxious nature get the better of me, for giving way to the imagined rather than the actual, as was my habitual wont. So I came to a compromise with myself. I'd give it one more day, and if I still couldn't find it in me to relax, I'd admit defeat. I knew I couldn't expect a refund for the remaining days, nor would I ask, but if I was going to spend half the night jumping out of my skin, I would be better off at home. I decided to spend the day further afield, and after another futile search for Sanderson, who Tom assured me often did disappearing acts, I set off for the nearest quaint Kentish town. I visited churches and antique shops, I had tea and cake served to me by girls in black dresses with white aprons, I dawdled in a local history museum, I bought a book on smuggling in the 17th century, and I had dinner in a lovely restaurant with views of a fine church tower. Then I drove back through the unlit country roads in a light-hearted mood, looking forward to a tot or two of the fifteen-year-old rum I'd bought from a little shop in a honey-coloured market square. I parked the car outside the cottage, but I didn't get out. Instead, I sat listening to the impatient tick of the cooling engine, reluctant to move at all. Stupid, I shouted, and I gathered up my bags decisively and went around to the back of the house. But I couldn't shake the unease. I went to the woodshed and fetched the axe that was kept next to the pile of logs. Insurance. I told myself, who wouldn't sleep easy with an axe under the bed? The back door was unlocked. No need to panic, I thought. No need. Didn't you forget to lock it once last week? Yes, yes, you did. Thought you'd done it, but you hadn't. Putting down my bags, but not the axe, I felt for the light switch inside the door. The bulb flickered and extinguished with a snap, and in the brief moment I saw illuminated as if by lightning the gurning, malevolent features of Jacob Sleater and a Sleater's son bent over something huge and ghastly white, into whom they were aiming brutal, driving blows. In the dark, the room seemed to drag itself towards me. Everything dropped from height and crashed into the ground, churned and broken, then rose upwards in a furious squall. A mass of flesh smashed into me, crushing me into the wall, surrounding me with choking stench, the smell of dung and airless earth and diseased breath. Then it spun away, barreling through the open door with the others, out into the night. I stumbled in panic to the kitchen, shoved the chair up against the door and felt my way to the window. Even though what I then witnessed is burnt into my mind, even though I see it again and again in paralyzing, death-like dreams, despite all this, I still question how we can ever know if our memories are truly real. I mean the quivering heave of the wet, white flesh that the sleeters were battling to restrain, the fluttering of the root-like fingers, the flailing, clotted, swollen arms and bowed, half-melted legs, the distorted head which juddered through restless attempts at features, 
a nose that spasmed into the form of an eye, an ear that emptied into a mouth. Jacob Sleater, horribly cut and bruised about the face, had managed to tie some rope around the thing's upper half, and the Sleater's son, unflinching, was throwing his own rope over its head. With a united grunting effort, they pulled their ends of rope tight, penning the creature between them, and dragged its spasming body to a newly hacked gash in the hedge, through into the rotten furrows of their moonlit field. Tom was still clearing up in the bar after closing when I banged on the side door, shouting fit to wake the whole village, which I no doubt did. He ushered me to a table near the fire, brought me a double brandy, and told me to slow down, to try to get my words right, to take a deep breath. After listening to my muddled, near-delirious account of what happened at the cottage, he rose from the table to fetch the rest of the brandy and a glass for himself. His eyes were troubled when he sat back down but his manner was as steady as ever. Now then, first things first, he said, filling our glasses. Did you contact the police at all before you came over here? Did you call them? It was a sensible and practical question. I should have done that, and felt embarrassed to admit I hadn't. No, I suppose my first thought was to get somewhere and be safe, but we can call them now. We should do that right away. I stood up and felt for my phone, but as I pulled it from my pocket, Tom said... And what will you tell them? You see, that's why I asked. What would you say to them, or anyone, that the Sleeters were fighting with a monster in your cottage? Is that what you tell them? I couldn't grasp what he was saying and went on the defensive, waving my arms about to press my point home. But that's what it was like. You, you didn't see it. You can't imagine what it was like. I don't know what it was. Something, something sick. Some sick, deformed thing. A goat. I gaped at Tom, feeling totally exasperated. Was he making fun of me? Did he think I'd exaggerated what I'd seen? Was his look of concern the sort he wore professionally to soothe hysterics and madmen and drunks? It wasn't a goat. It really, really wasn't a goat, I said. He drew his chair closer to the fireplace and studied what was left of the logs in the basket grate. Then he turned and spoke. Let me tell you something, he said. Around here... We have a saying, three days to lay a sleeter to rest. And do you know why? The sleeters, well, they don't uh, die, right? Never have. They die twice, you see. What's buried in the graveyard behind the church isn't what gets burned to ash and cast upon the ground in their orchard back along the old track. I can't change that, nor can they. And it's not for me or anyone else to say as we should. We leave them be, and things go on quite well. In a place like this, you make allowances. You have to, or life becomes unbearable, and that's how it is. It's just a shame you happened along when one of them decided to pass, and got you caught up in something you shouldn't have seen. It's a pity, that is. It isn't always like that, but John Sleater was one of the worst of them, and he was bound to go hard. I studied his face, hoping his solemn expression would suddenly break into laughter, willing him to slap his big hand on the table and shout, Oh, how'd you go in there? But that didn't happen. He looked entirely, frighteningly serious as he sat waiting for me to speak. Tom, do you mean it? But, but how can they die twice? What was that thing? How can they die twice? What was it I saw? I can't explain that in any way you'd like to hear, or in any way that would do you any good. So I say, it was a goat. A goat got loose. That's what they'd say. And that's what I'd say to anyone that asked. You being a worried sort of bloke got confused in the dark. When people from the city come down here, that can happen. They're just not used to the dark. And then he poured us another brandy, and we sat, not speaking, watching the end of the fire, ash falling like paper onto the worn stone of the hearth, the last dying forks of the blue-yellow flame. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? 
So this is a really special episode because this is the first episode of the classic Ghost Stories podcast where we've read out the story written by a living writer. I came across it in the anthology, which is a really fine anthology called uh, Fiends from the Furrows, which is a collection of modern new folk horror stories. And it's definitely worth a read. Some of the stuff's quite strange, but it's fun. It's very creative and very well written. So one of the stories that caught my eye was Back Along the Old Track, which is a classic folk horror story set in Kent. Well, you've just heard it. I've just read it. I contacted the author, Sam Samantha Hicks, and I asked her if she would uh, come and be interviewed. And she was absolutely delighted to be interviewed. So uh, that's the next piece we've got for you. Hope you enjoy listening. So, Sam, yeah, Sammy, Sam, Samantha, which, what, which do you prefer? Uh, well, Sam. Sam, okay. So, Sam, tell me something about yourself as a person as opposed to just a writer. Up to about three years ago, I was a civil servant. But I took, well, I retired early from the horror. Ah. And um, since then, I've been doing quite a bit of writing. Okay, so you like writing better than being a civil servant then? Yeah, considerably more. So, a new life then, doing your writing. And, and, and you've, you've published a few things, have you now? Yeah, I've had three published and one is coming out later in the year Good. in Dark Lane Anthology. You've got a very polished style, so I'm guessing you haven't just started writing three years ago. I suppose I've been picking at it a lot before then. I did, I would say, maybe five years, but then a year of those five years, I didn't write anything. So it was a year, then writing nothing, and then three years. You say, <laughs> say that you need, um, was 100,000 hours of doing anything to get good at it, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. I, I may have got that number wrong. Yeah, they do but it, say that, don't they? I've got about uh, nine, how many hours was it? 100,000? No, like it's 10,000, isn't it? Ah, it's going to be more than that, 10,000. No, I half. think it was 10,000. Oh, well. Anyway, I've got, I don't think I'm ever going to make half that number in my whole life. Well, I don't think you need to, because... Uh, oh, you, you see, there you go. No, it's, it's a very, it's very, I mean, I read a lot of uh, ghost stories. Um, well, stories, I read a lot of stories anyway, so... And I'm used to, um, I think Roald Dahl said when he was compiling his anthology that he read 700 or so ghost stories and most of them were rubbish, you know, very poorly mm. written. Um, anyway, this isn't technically a ghost story. So what made you write, what other kinds, I haven't come across your work otherwise. So what other kind of things do you write? Well, that was actually my first published story. Wow. Which was really good because it then went on to go into the best Horror of the Year, Volume 11, the Alan Datlow one, which was mind-blowing. Absolutely, it's, yeah. So what? Well-deserved. Uh, I mean, I, I, I thought it was a great anthology. There's a lot of really interesting stories in there. Um, so well-edited. Yeah, Fiends yeah. in the Furrows, yeah. Well, yeah. They're doing another one, I think, aren't they? Because of the first one. They are, yeah. Story. So do you write, I mean, is this the kind of thing you do write when you write? I would say that is pretty unusual Potentially, I think I did do that one uh, with a pure sense of enjoyment, really, well, just of the genre and the tropes of yeah. folk horror. It's really, got, it's it, got it's got them all there, hasn't it? Yeah, it does. Yes, it, it was very much with that in mind. I mean, I did more or less do it for that submission call. I and mean, normally, I can't really do anything for a submission call because my mind goes blank and, unless it's just a vague one yeah. but uh, for that one I instantly thought yeah folk horror it must have been so is do you watch the classic folk horror movies and things are you, are you soaked in that I think so but really when you think of it it's a pretty short list. I mean, I've been thinking about it, and Wicker Man, Blood on yeah. Satan's Floor, I kind of run so, out after that, really. There's, there's, I, what, I suppose yeah. it, there's elements of folk horror in so many other films and so many other genres. It's just a kind of a, a thing in the background of, of 
of many films and books. Absolutely. Yeah, it comes up time and time again. There's a story that, that we did on the um, podcast by Russell Kirk. Set it, I think he wrote it in the oh, 20s. Oh, I love Russell Kirk. Oh. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, it's behind the stumps and it's this kind of, it's a similar idea of, uh, uh, I mean, I won't spoil it, but basically this guy from the city goes. He's not a very nice man, though, unlike your character. And uh, he, he's going to sort these back, backwards people. Oh, out. I know the story, yeah. yes. Yes. Oh, it's marvellous. And yes. then he finds something horrible <laughs> that a family's hidden for a long time. So that, that reminded me of uh, mm. Back Along the Old Track. But it wasn't in your mind when you were writing it, no. No, I'd completely yeah. forgotten about that story. However, I've probably absorbed everything that I've ever read, so I don't it's, know. It's, that's true. I find that as well. You know, you think yeah. you've got an original idea or something, and then it turns out, oh my, I was influenced by you know so and so. So uh, yeah, completely. Yeah, often I've um, come up with an idea, and then I kind of Google it first just to check that nobody else has got a story like it. Yeah, yeah. often simultaneously they'll print it before you've had a chance some kind of synchronicity yeah but but i mean there's only what they say there's only seven stories or something i'm coming up with all these numbers tonight but there's only seven there, there are only so many stories in mm. the world and then it's it's how you tell them really um so Mardom in kent mm. is that is that based on a real place it kind of is um not so much the pub well what it what it was is I, I thought, well, I go walking in Kent quite a bit anyway, but um, I just wanted to, to go and have walk around somewhere and get some ideas for the story, which would be within a quick journey from London Bridge for me. Yeah, yeah. So um, I went to Eden Bridge in Kent and yes. walked around the area there, all around the fields and around the ponds and the little rivers there. Um, making notes and so forth and getting into the atmosphere. In fact, uh, uh, quite a few details in the story are from that walk. Like okay. um, there's a part where uh, the main character sees some something moving behind the hedge, just it, it getting lighter and darker, and that actually came from that walk. There was a very high hedge across the field and I could see something moving behind it. So it was getting darker and lighter as it moved along. But um, it was a jolly woman walking her dog. Uh, and it uh, took to the yeah, I thought you were going to say but some kind a, of a rural monster, you know. Yeah, but, uh, but for a moment it, it, it was quite eerie. Um, were you so on yeah, your own? I lots of notes. Yeah, I did, which is not always a good idea when you're right taking notes for a horror story you do spook yourself quite badly I've, I've found this if you don't spook yourself you know if you don't make yourself scared you're probably not going to scare anybody else no so. no but, uh, yeah that's an area I, I used to go to when i lived in south london years ago mm. uh, it's a lovely part of the world Mm. Uh, and it's not really full of monsters, just in case, you know, the Kent Tourist Board are listening. I don't, I well, maybe it is. Yeah. There's a <laughs> uh, feeling to some places, so there might be. Well, I read a book years ago called The Black Alchemist. It was purported to be a true story, uh, and it was set around sort of Kent and bits of Sussex as well. So you never know. But there is this, it's actually, <laughs> it's interesting, there's this feeling that, you know, once you go into the rural areas you you're going back in time and to old mm. traditions and hidden things mm. yeah yeah well you like to fantasize um, that that's the case whether whether it still is and certainly it is still the case in some remote parts but um yeah well, you like to believe that that's could still be the case. Yeah, yeah I suppose uh, the, 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 the truth of that is that we're looking for enchantment as well as horror, I think. You know, we're, yeah. we're, look, yeah, we're looking for both, the, the wonder of things again. Mm. Your, your, your monster, do you want to say something about the monster, What the thing they rope, the goat, so-called? Mm. Um, that's a, well, not really. I, I don't know what I'd say about it, really. It's just your standard horrible shape-shifting kind of demonic thing really yeah it reminded me of two things when i was reading it one was um it was quite lovecraftian in some ways i i would concur i think there is more than a touch of lovecraft yeah. about that story well, he, I, I'd hold my hands up to that one yeah yes. i think 
he's, you know, whatever you think about him as a man, his stories cast a long shadow over the genre. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the atmosphere of his stories that I, I love the most, really. Yeah. The strangeness of, mm. you know, the, these bizarre things. And the other thing it reminded me of, and I don't know if this reference will mean anything to you. When I was a kid, I used to read a comic called 2000 AD. Oh, gosh, yes. Well, I've, I've been reading 2018. How have you now? <laughs> yes. I mean, you although, actually, I, in a cost-cutting drive, I did stop my uh, subscription a couple of years ago. My brother had every single copy of that. He probably yeah. still has. Uh, yeah. Up until about, you know, who knows what, what yeah. But the, do you remember the, the warrior, the shape-shifting warrior slain, this Irish oh, Celtic? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he, his face used to go off. In, you know, your, your thing grows an ear. Yeah, he spat, oh. absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that's when I was thinking, I was seeing this big yeah. sluggish squid thing and he was, uh, uh, an ear was growing and a mouth was growing and yeah. all these things, you know. Yeah, it's an interesting connection. It, well, yeah. yeah, it just depends what's in well, your I head, isn't it? I think I stole it from David Cronenberg. I'm not sure. As I say, it's just all been absorbed. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's right, and then and then you put your put, you put your own spin on it. No, it was a good story though, and uh, the the only thing I, when I was reading it, of course, and I'd read it before, and I knew it was in Kent, but I started off doing the voices, the pub guys, voices mm. as general sort of country type things, and then I thought, oh no, they're actually Kentish men or men of Kent, whichever. Yeah, I which kind of imagine them talking in Mamashire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As well. <laughs> Rather than probably if you went down there, they're all kind of a bit like this, mate, you know. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, it isn't quite as um, sinister, which leads me on to the question. Do you think there's there's room for a an urban folk horror? Oh, I think undoubtedly, yes. Yes, nice idea. Because there are some dark and sequestered places mm. say in london as well you know well, that, well yeah. to me i'm almost quite kind of um what i think maybe in terms of the edge lands as well yeah. like the outskirts yeah yeah the borders are thin in fact uh, um the story i've got in dark, coming out in dark lane and anthology is very Inspired by my travels around Dartford, which is that, one such true. area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so um, it's very much set in that kind of um, environment. Because the east part of London was just huge marshlands for centuries, wasn't it? That's yeah. it. It's kind of ruined marshland. It's got these yeah. little bits of industrial islands in it, but the rest is just nature coming back or... Yeah. Or ruined nature. It's a, that. I mean, that's a complete folk horror environment, really. Absolutely, and I think folk horror sort of links in, without getting too academic, links in with um, people like Ian Sinclair and the old psychotography mm -hmm. thing. You know, mm. want rediscovering the city and and yeah. its, its resonances and its history, yeah. but it's also its uh, not not its factual history, but its um, I don't know if spiritual history is the right word, but supernatural history, maybe, yeah. So that's that's an idea. That's an interesting thing. I haven't seen because eventually they'll get. I mean, mid, I don't know if you saw Midsummer, the film. Yeah, I'm not much of a fan of that. It, it was mixed. It was fairly horrible, mind. But you know, this idea of going into this rural backwater, mm. it, it's going to become tired eventually, and yeah. I think you know maybe the city offers another another um, option. Well, absolutely. I think that's something uh, Lovecraft did as well, really, in a way. There's strange the, um, little communities, like caught in the middle of the city, which nobody else has noticed. Oh, yeah, which is, I was just reading that not long ago. The guy who's the painter who paints all that that's strange the stuff, yeah. Oh, oh, Pickman's model. And it's in, is it set in Boston? Yeah. There's one of them, but certainly in in yeah, in the yeah. middle of a city, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What you're working on now? You are you writing anything right now? I am. It's I'm kind of getting a bit stuck with it, but I'm going to plow on. No good. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so several works in progress. I would say. And, and are they for, you know, publications calling out for them? Are you writing towards a brief? Um, or is the it one just I'm the... having trouble, I was intending to do that. But again, it's the curse of um, a publication call that my mind completely goes blank. So I might go back to the, just my ones I was doing for my own 
interest I think if you're not if you don't enjoy what you're writing it's hard to to finish yeah. it yeah it has yes it, it is so you I think you were saying there's an audible version of um, of your story in fiends from the furrows Yes, but um, that's from the. That's because best the best horror of the year is on uh, yeah. Audible, rather than Fiends in the Pharaoh. Okay, okay. So there's you've got some audio books out. I'm guessing you've got. Well, I've got a copy of your print book of the print book here. So, what what other ways can people get hold of your material? Well, there is. A, I actually found the other day that there's a Goodreads page with my publishing. Uh -huh. Publication so far on, so the Goodreads oh. site is a good place to look. Okay, it's well, a very very short list as yet, and they have said that I've um, I'm the author of Desert Plants and People, which sounds like a fantastic book, but I didn't write. It. <laughs> and uh, did you get any royalties for it either? You know, <laughs> so, so. Yes, okay. but it's kind of a cool book to be uh, wrongly attributed to so me. But the, the other ones are definitely by me. That's actually funny because, you know, I'm Tony Walker, so I've got, there's another Tony Walker who writes maybe multiple ones because it's a common name. So there's a guy who writes about how, what to do when you retire, and there's another guy who writes about how to survive a gunfight, and I didn't, write, I didn't write any of those. So that's funny. Yeah, best horror of the year, I can see now, things in the furrows, um, and then some, one about tax, which probably you didn't write. But you, oh, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe you do. Maybe you're a bit of a tax expert <laughs> on the side. Uh, but there we are. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so really nice to talk to you. Okay. Um, I really enjoyed reading your story, and uh, I'll put some links to your to your Goodreads page. Absolutely on the on the show notes. Yeah. Nice to talk to you. It's a problem. Yeah, and you. Thanks. All right. And Cheers. Bye -bye. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. So that was me talking to author Sam Hicks, the author of Back Along the Old Track, which is in two anthologies, Fiends from the Furrows and also Best Horror of the Year, number 11. So you can get hold of copies of that via Amazon, and you've just heard me read the story. But uh, as Sam said, she's doing more stuff, so I'll put a link to her Goodreads page on the show notes. That was quite fun. I quite enjoyed actually talking to somebody living rather than dead. We managed to get all sorts of references in. I used to go to Eden Bridge. I used to read 2000 AD. So it's amazing. One, one thing I've found since doing this kind of thing and getting more involved in the, the folk horror, particularly community, is how many likes we have in common, how many things I thought were just mine, in fact, were shared by lots and lots of people. So that's been really nice. Okay, so that's this episode uh, wrapped up. I will speak to you again soon. Okay, keep listening, keep sharing. Keep rating, as long as it's nice. Keep, keep buying me coffee. That's cool. All right, cheers. You all take care. Bye-bye.